Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. Welcome to Chapter 23. It's 2016, and we're talking about the return of artificial intelligence. And I'm joined with a friend of mine, Chris Gilliard. Welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Chris and I are longtime friends, and I thought he would be a perfect person to talk about AI and ed tech and all the things we might find creepy about that whole topic. Uh, I was surprised this chapter was in the book, Martin. Just side note. I read it, and I'm like, the return of artificial intelligence? Let's get into this, because it's right. It's not a new thing, but it seems creepier now. <laughs> I know. Well, I felt... Looking like the title, I felt like, you know, some LL Cool J, right? <laughs> like, don't call it a comeback. <laughs> For years. It's true. <laughs> we just never really talked about the AI elephant in the room. Like, intelligent tutoring systems was a thing back in the 80s. I, um, reading back to this throwback to what we expected to watch people, um, this goes back to like even how we had prisons in the Panopticon. Really, how we structure learning in general is all about how we're being watched. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing I think is um, there's so many things that get called AI that are not, uh, oh, yeah. you know, that that kind of misdirection, right? Like the, do you even AI bro kind of thing, um, I think is a part that can't be removed from the, the larger discussion. All right, let's break that down because I don't know who's listening to this conversation and uh, what are some things that get called AI that aren't for our listeners? <laughs> oh gosh, so I just got um, asked a very similar question yesterday um, by Sean Michael Morris. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, like I should say, not a computer scientist, not a data scientist. Um, but I think uh, sometimes things as simple as like, um, basically kind of like, uh, um, spreadsheets and flow charts and things like that, when they become automated, get called AI. Um, <laughs> it, like, it seems like a joke. It's, <laughs> I mean, you know, like, it seems magic. Um, so anything magical on a spreadsheet is AI. Okay. Right. Right. Well, that's the thing, right. It be- has become like the term AI, you know, sometimes people say AI when they mean machine learning. Um, but sometimes um, it's like a stand-in term just for like a computer process that uh, we don't want to explain to you um, or a computer process that we actually don't understand. We being the company, we actually don't understand either, but um, we want this term to signify certain kinds of things about how our systems work. Um, that, that's a good call out. And so, okay, I'm going to go to the Wikipedia definition and read it out. Uh, AI, artificial intelligence, is intelligence demonstrated by machines, unlike the natural intelligence displayed by humans and animals, which involve conscientiousness and emotionality. The distinction between the former and the latter, often revealed by the acronym AI or strong AI. Um, by the way, I don't think all humans have natural intelligence so do, and, and dogs. If you're training a new puppy in the pandemic, I question some of that. Um, so that's a really vague definition. Um, so I guess that's why people interpret machine learning 
with or if something smart that we automate on a dashboard or a spreadsheet, but it's not necessarily that. Um, how, how do you think of AI? Well, I'm a little bit reluctant to answer this. That's fine. Um, because I think it's like easier to say what it's not than what it is. True. um, Because there's this, I mean, I think there's a really popular misconception and this runs from top to bottom, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think even computer scientists are guilty of perpetuating this myth that there's some system out there or some set of systems that actually like is like a human brain, Right. right? Like, you know, um, which like kind of no, like, you know, but even like I, I was reading something the other day by uh, um, from some high ranking government official in like the defense department. And he was parroting this thing like, oh, these systems, they learn just like a human mind. And like, you know, like pretty soon we're going to have these systems that do this and do that. And like 99% of what he was saying was kind of inaccurate and not at all what systems are currently capable of doing. Um, But I I think that that's the, oh, there's a a great um, article. Um, Oh yes. This is, this is, there's a great article by uh, Jason Sadowski and it's called Potemkin AI. And what he talks about is essentially that the myth of what AI can do is like a relevant and important stand in. Um, despite the fact that it can't do that. So, but it holds that space in the hopes that in some point in the future, right, it will be able to do that. Mm. Um, but the, that is that narrative exists to like hold a space where that people can kind of dump all their beliefs and, and ridiculous claims into. Um, I mean, and by the way, like also lots of AI is just like human beings you know, on some remote site, you know, whether that's Mechanical Turk or, you know, commercial content moderators or what have you, it's basically human beings at a remote site um, doing the work behind a curtain. Uh, you so it's know, not so even real. So it's not even real. It's, it's all fake. not like a machine's not doing No. That, right? <laughs> like, it's not. Um, yeah. the, the easiest definition I can give to listeners, I pulled up IBMs. I like that they say that it's... Um, a system that can include anything like an expert system, which may have someone working behind the curtain, like the Wizard of Oz, like you just said. Um, so you're supposed to apply problem-solving application to make decisions based on a complex set of rules, like if-then. But that's still programmed by someone, something, somewhere. Uh, so the example they gave was something equivalent of the Pixar character, Wally, the computer that develops the intelligence, free will, and emotions of human beings. We're never going to get to that part. And if we do, <laughs> I want to be the blobs on the head. Okay, so AI is the bigger picture. And in that, there's another circle that's embedded called machine learning and another circle of deep learning. We are not computer scientists. We can riff on what we little we know about it, but that's the basics that we're going to get into. So if you have comments and you want to talk more about us, send me an audio clip. I'm happy to add this to the podcast somewhere on these bonus episodes because that's just it. But everything you said about the DOD person talking about it, I think higher ed had the same hopes like, oh, AI will solve all the little administrative things we don't want to do. Like grade assignments or help tutor learners and that's just not true yeah i mean well there are 
Um, there are systems, right, that will, for instance, grade grade essays. Um, and so, you know, uh, as a prolific tweeter, um, one of the things is, uh, um, so there's a recent, within the last year, there's an article in, I think, The Verge, where students were figuring out, um, they figured out the pattern by which uh, whatever technical system it was, was grading their essays, mm-hmm. right? So they figured out the pattern, like, you know, whatever it was. So certain length of words, certain length of sentences, you know, certain kinds of grammar. And they were using that to pass their essays without really composing um, functioning and meaningful essays. So teachers were outraged and claimed the students were cheating. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, they just AI'd themselves and became smarter and grew their own neural networks. I think they just became little AIs themselves. (laughs) And so I tweeted and I said, stop calling this cheating. And of course, like a lot of computer scientists and data scientists and other um, folks in tech follow me on Twitter and lots of them clapped back and said, stop calling this AI, you know? Um, So, yeah, I mean, there is, and again, this is, it's part of a larger problem with how we understand ed tech and how we adapt systems, which is that, um, I'm sure the people who sold that said it's like, oh, it's this advanced neural network and it can do this thing and like grade papers better than a human being and faster mm-hmm. and free stu- you know, teachers up to do the things that really matter in a classroom. And so I'm sure they said that, right? Like, you know, I just made that up off the top of my head, but But you're probably right. We, That's a script. <laughs> guaranteed if we go back and look at the um the promotional materials from some of these um companies you know it's it was pretty it's pretty close aligned closely aligned with what i just said well that's part of this like larger narrative yeah exactly of like um ed tech companies and ed tech boosters um making all kinds of claims about what their systems can do and often you know uh administrators in some cases instructors overall um buying those uh buying those claims without fully investigating them um yeah uh yeah i mean yeah so in in a lot of ways not much different from what uh the dod does um unfortunately well something you're saying to me just reminds me that we are never part and when i say use the term we and when you're in higher education, if you're an educator, a researcher, instructor, or an administrator, you're not typically the part on that dev and design team that's creating any system or tool. It's a rarity that you actually have embedded teams that are come from different angles to support something. And I, um, I've learned, and <laughs> you could help some of these creations by addressing the issues early on, instead of having that salesperson give you that script, which is what you said, I believe that is true. Um, Say this will solve your problems. Why not work with a technology company or an ed tech developer in early stages to say, this is the problem. Can we work to build this thing? That doesn't often happen. We just get given these things like here's something like turn it in. It will automatically read and evaluate 
common things that to let you know if there's plagiarism on your paper or we know these tools that um, whether they're they're kind of trying to make your teaching life easier but is it easier like it doesn't make sense to yeah me. I mean this is the problem with kind of tech writ large right it's like mm-hmm. why we find ourselves where we are um, you know as a society in a, in a lot of ways is because the people who make these systems um, do not um, in no way understand either, you know, the systems that they no way understand the systems or institutions that they claim to be building these things for, but also don't like uh, threat model or imagine all the ways that um, these systems will be used. So they either don't imagine or don't care. And, you know, I mean, we could dive deeper into that if you want. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think, I think that is. Like, I think yeah. you're right. I think it's just they don't have the same perspective or lens of how it could be used to do harm. The, yeah. the ethics because, behind it. Yeah, and because um, we're not often in the room, um, this is what we get. I mean, I, the, the textbook case, I think, from the pandemic is Zoom. Mm. Um, and so um, as people um, migrated heavily to Zoom, you know, um, when the pandemic was ramping up um, in March, um, it was, of course, um, you know, that's when we started to see Zoom bombing and other t- kinds of targeted harassment and things like that. And um, the CEO of Zoom came out and said, like, oh, we never imagined Zoom would be used in this way. And it's like, wait, like, how is this possible? I mean, I know how it's possible, right? Like, because I can imagine what the team of developers at Zoom looks like. They don't look like me, you know. <laughs> um, Whatever do you like, mean, Chris? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, because the idea that, you you know, so it's enterprise software, right? It's yeah. made for business applications. And, you know, certainly that that is a different set of requirements um, than for an eighth grade class right? Or for a college class or for a grad student defending their dissertation. Um, But the idea that you would um, create the system and never ask the question, like, oh, how will people use this to target and harass uh, marginalized um, people and vulnerable people? Right. That, That would, you know, like, and again, like, so this is, Zoom is a great example because everyone was forced onto it, um, during the pandemic but this is also true of pretty much every other technology that we could name like edtech and not mm-hmm. whether that's you know the proctoring systems whether it's you know some kind of plagiarism detection you know quotes system um whether it's a a, a learning management system like many of these things are not the the ideas about like who's going to use them um, how those people might be vulnerable, um, what, you know, ideologies are embedded in the systems, like what a teaching and learning mean, like where, what is private, you know, like where do people's data go, like kind of all the things that we always talk about, like are often not conceptualized um, until harm is done. Um, and then often those, the fixes aren't even made after that. So. 
Yeah. For anyone who's listened to Chris and I talk on probably other podcasts and other conferences and other things, uh, we've run on soapbox on surveillance. I think it's the agency and the um, agency and choice of what people can use. And that includes learners. Like we don't give our students choice, um, let alone our instructors or the adjunct instruction staff that's being uh, tooled up in this digital world now that we're remote or high high flex. And this is happening K-12 and in higher ed. Um, we're seeing an onboarding of people to say, you're the in-person teacher, you're the virtual one, rotate and use the tools that someone else has said we should use because that's who sold it to us um, versus like it's funny. I only use Zoom to podcast now to talk to my friends because I work at a tech company. Um, this is a secret or not a secret for people. Uh, I work at a tech company that won't approve Zoom. So that should tell you something at this tech company. <laughs> so information security won't approve some of these systems. So we need to think about that. Um, what does that mean if you're forcing people into these spaces or showing up in different like pockets. Like we don't give people choices of where they put data in the learning management system. And we've ranted about this in previous episodes of Between the Chapters, but I think you're right is saying there's been a forcing of tools and this happens to be where AI sometimes lives and um, other aspects of AI um, that we're just in it now for teaching and learning. And who makes those decisions? Mm. Do they actually teach or learn? Probably not. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I mean, there are so many, there's a recent, uh, more recent example with, um, with uh, in the markup, right? In uh, Julia Angwin's um, journalism outfit. And there's a, a journalist named Todd Feathers who wrote like a great piece about um, a uh, schools that use a, a software that assigns students risk scores um, based on the, their, you know, say risk of dropping out or mm. how likely they are to persist at the institution in a particular program, things like that. Um, I'm not going to be able to do it justice by describing it. Like, go read it. We'll put it in the show notes. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, what it turns out is that neither the professors nor the administrators knew how the system worked. And so one of the things that the system was doing was um, taking into account race uh, and um, using that as one of the metrics for determining this risk score. Um, so lots of problems with that. Um, but the people who were using it and using it, uh, you know, against, in my estimation, against students, didn't even know how it worked, right? The people who bought it didn't know how it worked, or at least if they're um, if their account to the journalists are to be believed, right? The, mm -hmm. So they procured this system um, and didn't know how it worked until someone else dug into it. Um, you know, and again, like there were like claims about what AI can do. Um, yeah, so. This ties into the conversation I had with Dragon and Anne-Marie around learning analytics, like the idea of predictive modeling like this is an algorithm case right and it's saying the predictors of student success and it really means that people that are using these systems and tools don't understand like 
what's being evaluated along the way or the that um, way that I think this is the AM case you're talking about, the way that it would flag people in a system. Like if they don't show up to your class or they're not participating, maybe they're just reading outside the class like they should be doing or reflecting. Because um, I really a good point from that episode was like, we talked about not all learning can be seen and mm-hmm. should be seen really. If we're yeah. letting people process and digest and like, critically write somewhere else off screen. Like they shouldn't always be on a screen and be seen. Yeah. I mean, there are some widespread uh, and very harmful myths about what learning is, what it looks like, what attention is, whether or not you can tell if someone is performing those things by looking at them. You cannot, Um, you know, I mean, I, I learned this lesson a long time ago at my institution. Um, because there was a student uh, who was like, every time we had something to do, he was on his phone. Um, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, you know. So I, like, at some point, walk over to him and say, hey, you know, what are you doing? And he was composing his paper on his phone, even though we were in a computer lab, because he had, um, I mean, that he had gained such proficiency with his device that. He was like better off in his terms, right? And and those are the terms that I should respect. He's better off in his terms, like composing it on his phone than typing it on the computer in class. But to just look at that person, right? Like, I mean, it's it would have been easy to assume that he was like doing something other than composing his paper. Um, and you know, again, so a lot of these systems are based on um, mistaken notions like that right they are like like beliefs like that encoded yeah um, like lack of activity like if someone's not like i only taught online and i think of so many times i'm like well they're just not interested or invested or motivated well no maybe they're working 45 50 hours a week plus taking three classes and have two children and also are dealing with uh living in a car like there could be so much other things we don't know beyond that screen right and so exactly it is kind of hard that we're creating these spaces that require like a a click log or a checklist or check in and it's really like you said performative and not right yeah yeah and yeah i mean very um very much kind of uh defining um mistakenly defining what what learning is right like uh, i think one of the most important things i've learned in my journey like not only as a, a student but a teacher is, right, is that it's often going to look very different to very different people right. right i mean um many outside observers like don't understand how i get work done <laughs> like, um but you know for instance like as i mentioned before like prolific tweeters well, as it turns out, it's like a pretty good mechanism for um, trying out ideas and, and composing things, right? Yeah. Like, but to the outside observer, it's like, might just seem like, oh, wow, this dude has a lot of time to waste on Twitter. Um, I mean, or both could be true. you can live you can live in dualities no but i think you're right like i think um i've been processing things out loud with folks i I, some might say i have a podcast problem but it also means we're digging into issues 
I sit back and edit this later, I reflect on it, or I look for things, or I read a bit more, and it's really internalizes some of these ideas I'm talking about. So what does learning have to be me showing up to a Zoom room when it could be me going back to listen to something we've talked out and you've given me like four articles I already have to read right now and put in the show notes, which is great. But like, that's really part of that process. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is, uh, yeah. I mean, it's my, it's my problem with um, anyone. I mean, but particularly with like technologies that seeks to standardize things um, and encode them in, in ways, you know, things that are highly, uh, individualized uh, and you know further punish people who don't adhere to what they've established as what the systems have established as a norm and so this is why I like you know spend a lot of time railing against um, you know AI and, and ML you know um, in in or so-called AI and ML in in ed tech yeah, they're like baby AI. Like it's little A, little I. Because we don't really even have, <laughs> like if we actually had AI, it would be such a different world. But like, it's funny, this narrow view, and Martin talks about in his chapter, uh, he, says it's such, he says it's a very distinct type of AI that most people call to mind, which attract headlines, which is more about general AI, but not actually what like higher ed's using it for. So it's kind of bananas to me to think that um, the return of AI means, did it actually even exist? And it was these little, like, let's have a chat bot to help someone that needs a student services or an orientation or something or uh, the library. And I was like, librarians have been doing that for years and they didn't need to be bots. Or um, yeah. let's have a grading system that gives me auto grade when they get this many words for a reflection post. Sure, if that's what you want them just to put the words in and they say, yes, done, complete. Um, but that's not really AI. Like yeah. it's just like automating things that people are making other learners do to get a point or a carrot, I guess. So, yeah. oh gosh, the AI chatbot. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that you have story. one of those, obviously, right? Well, that story got so much traction. Um, I actually wrote an article about this in the Chronicle where uh, I'm amazed that they printed it because I spoke out very harshly about an individual at another institution who um, ran an experiment on his students where he constructed a chat bot and had um, students interacting with it all semester. But okay. he didn't tell them it was a chat bot. He told them it was a, it was a grad assistant. Interesting. Tell me more. Yeah. So, you know, so, I mean, students tend to, um, you know, sometimes they ask repeated questions, right? Like if you, if you teach a lot of students, a lot of them are going to ask you questions True. that you feel like you answered on the syllabus. I mean, like deal with it, whatever. <laughs> like, um, but so this guy's, this guy's um, tactic was he, he, um, he, uh, made a chat bot. It was based off of like, uh, you know, IBM's Watson. Right. Um, so he named it Jill. And so he said he had a grad assistant named Jill. And like, anytime a student had a, a question, like a basic question, he would refer the student to Jill Watson. Um, and at the end of the semester, he like, re you know, the big reveal, like he told them that they had been interacting with the chat bot. 
and this like was widely reported in like many um uh like uh venues that that do like ed tech right like mm-hmm. oh a- ai chatbot fools students into thinking like you know it's a real grad student or whatever um probably by the way i'm describing it you can tell i have lots of problems with this <laughs> <laughs> i thought i thought you loved it and you were going to now implement it i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> um right primarily uh that he used you know experiments on students without their consent Right, that's like the main problem, but mm-hmm. there are others. Um, but yeah, that that like chatbot as uh, exemplar of AI has gotten so much mileage in the last several years, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, even now, I mean, like lots of institutions are. Um, I mean, I shouldn't say lots. Um, I don't know the exact number, but I seem to. I feel like I see stories um, about this fairly often um universities are investing in like these different kinds of chatbots to assist students um whether that be like you know first year students or um students who are um struggling in some manner or other things like that like mm-hmm. that this is often pitched as a solution like ai chatbots um i'm very skeptical of this as a as a solution to the problems <laughs> that students are experiencing. Yeah, and I think it's tied into some of the data piece that with learning analytics that we talked about in chapter 21 goes over because it's you're making decisions on um, an algorithm uh, that you decide or a predicting factor that may not really be predictive of us. It could be student success. It could be retention. It could be uh, whether they're in class or not. But these are all like assumptions that are made in vacuums and like if our persons that come to school to learn were just people to learn that would be fine but they have all these other factors in their life um and that includes the people that work at the university so i think about staff professional staff i think about the academic staff teaching faculty and those that are are in the periphery that interact the university as an adjunct Um, there's all these other things they make assumptions for and they're like well these are the things that show good performance, whether you're a student or learner or even an instructor. Like we have these decisions kind of already baked into some of um, the ed tech systems. And that's everything from the learning management system to maybe the people portal you have, the CRMS to whatever yeah. else you're using to flag engagement, whatever that means. I'm using air quotes, yeah. interaction, engage. I'm like, that's not, is that engagement quote, air quote? I don't know. Right. And I mean, again, we already know some of the things that work, right? Do they have transportation? Do they have childcare? Right. Shelter? Do they have food, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Like, so, I mean, investment in those things by institutions, like, um, it's my assertion, would go much further than a chatbot. Um, but, you know, as, as people say sometimes, I don't think a lot of institutions are ready for that conversation. No, and it's it's what you said, and I think the chapter ends like we will need humans to do interventions. It's not going to be um, automated. And I, I remember talking to like a group of, I think it was academic advisors, and I went out to Australia, and we had I had a talk, and they're like, the future won't be automated because it's not that simple of 
And if then, like, I'm not going to be as an advisor um, doing a triage, like, this doesn't happen, then let's go this route and pathway. And then if then statement take you here, no, then you need this. Uh, career counseling, away you go. Like, it's not that simple because those are going to be natural things that we need to always have. Um, so, like, I think there's questions around like in 20, this is 2015. So this is before this chapter comes out, but we talked, they were talking about big data, predictive and learning analytics. And how does that impact both the financial side of um, advising students to retention of students? And I was like, maybe they need to drop out because someone passed away in their family and they're like the breadwinner. I don't know. Like the, the if then statement's not going to work for your model of whatever you're trying to up the success of your learner and keeping them in your college or university. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you think tw- 2016 was the height? Cause I feel like this happened before, obviously the chapter talks about earlier AI yeah. exemption examples, but like, is, is this where uh, some of this came out? Did you experience this before 2016? I don't remember. Um, I mean, it seems like that was, so that was, Maybe it was the height, right? And like yeah. part of the part of the reason for that is that might have been the last year where tech um, got a free pass. True. Um, because, right? Not to say, uh, yeah, I'm certainly not going to say that that many people, you know, haven't been highly critical of tech and platforms for long before that. Um, but I think in a lot of popular um, versions. Um, it may have been the last year that tech got a free pass because of the 2016 um, presidential election, right. you know, because it was the thing that woke a lot of people up to um, real world effects of some of these platforms, right? Like Cambridge Analytica on, on Facebook and, um, you know, uh, uh, the ways that people are able to amplify uh, and magnify their hateful messages on Twitter and things like that. Um, again, it's not that people didn't know this before, but it is, it's, it, you know, it could be argued that this is that, that 2016 was the time when um, that became like super clear to more people than it had been uh, previously. I think you're right. We came to like a head on platforms and questioning whether or not we should be on these spaces. Like a lot of those platforms um, publicly that were used just in social media were changing uh, their policies to, I think it was, it was their uh, privacy policy got changed to data policy. And then we also saw like a lot of different um, just pushback on where, where do we want to be? And, it, it was also a couple of years after the first shooting, um, a couple of shootings, uh, whether it was Trayvon or there was, there was a lot of push in 2016. I remember early that year, there's a community in Facebook when I was on it loosely. Um, the student affairs professionals had 30,000 people and they had like a blackout and it was a push for racial voice and equity for the month of March. 2016 was a volatile year. That was also the election in the U.S., um that got taken over by old 45 like there's so much going on that year that it was right. a kind of a reckoning and you're right maybe that was the tipping point of what people were going to put up with or what people realized was really going on online 
Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and I, I think we're certainly still seeing um, a lot of these narratives about AI. Um, but, you know, I, I think very fortunately met with a lot more skepticism. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, there's all these, you know, sort of like the, the thing I've been banging the drum on for a while, right? Remote proctoring. And there's all these claims by many of these companies that they have AI that can detect cheating. Um, uh, but yeah, like lots of skepticism, lots of student pushback. Um, yeah. We're not going to solve AI, but it is, it is something that's wrapped into other things that people are thinking of. Um, and I know that the end of this book has some, the last chapter will all get into talking about dystopia and ed tech, but this is like part of that. This adds to the the view of how these tools are used. And it's not just that it's a tool. It's there's so much more baked into it. And I think Martin alludes to that in this chapter. Was there any kind of questions or things that you're thinking of that you want to pose to the community or Martin to think about when it comes to AI? I guess the, uh, I mean, I, w- I would go back to not, not Martin. I mean, I think the chapter does a great job of, um, of representing this and accounting for it. But I guess, I mean, one of the things uh, I would just encourage people to think about or be wary of is um, that idea about like what AI can and can't do. And um, when we're told that a system can do a thing that sounds improbable or like impossible. Like um, the all signs point to the fact that like <laughs> that these companies are probably lying, right? So like if they say like they have a system that can guarantee you know some measure of certainty, like which students will persist, or you know which kind of, what grade students will get in a, in a particular class or how they're feeling or paying attention based on tracking their, um, their face. Um, these things, I, I mean, like, so what they essentially said is they can tell the future and they can read your mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess so. It cannot do that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> wary, right. Yeah. To be wary of claims, of claims about things like things that sound fantastic. Um, are, and, maybe not possible um aren't like don't suddenly become possible because we don't understand the technology um and i think that that's like a persistent claim about like um the ai is used to occlude that um that fact and like um make those claims seem likely when they're really not yeah, I think Martin's call out to generalization and performing these tasks that we think are improbable should be questioned. And I think bringing other people to the table, I was reminded today, um, there's a tweet uh, my Patrice put out there of asking, like, is there a survey that our students could evaluate a tool? I was like, that's great. Like, we should have more people around that stakeholder table to say, is this something we want? And their students, our learners should be part of that. Um, maybe as instructors, if you have opportunities to ask questions before something's just given to you. Um, and I don't know if and when we'll ever return to a conference. I will not miss the vendor hall. Um, <laughs> but asking them like questions that unpack some of this fantastical idea 
of uh, improving your connection and automating your grading, like ask them how this happens and what are the impacts to this? I think we could do better with um, taking off those rose colored glasses and gleaning away from any shiny pamphlet or uh, whatever setup they have at a conference. I don't think, I hope that doesn't happen again. I hope we move away from that. But I, I do think we can ask better questions of the, what's the impact and what kind of agency and choice do people have, especially if um, you aren't able to do things that are baked into systems. So it won't be obvious. AI won't be an obvious thing to you in a tool, um, but it might be something that's baked into the platform what information it gives an output or what data it pulls in. So those are some of the questions I think maybe asking more about that. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. I'm scared about this tracking of information. Uh, as you said, like it won't, it'll know my emotions and how I'm going to do on my next, next <laughs> test. Dr. Gilliard, I am not showing up to your course again. I'm not going to be on screen. Um, all right. Uh, let's end on a positive note. I do think yeah. humans are going to be important in teaching and learning. And I like that call out. Sulin brings out those six reasons why AI will never take over from human teachers. So the social connection, the cognitive, the talking out loud, improvisation and making do. Um, do you think the robots are coming for your job? I mean, they are. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. You know, but I, I think it's a fundamental understanding, right? I teach writing. And yeah. so, I mean, I think it's a fundamental un misunderstanding about what it means to write um, that uh, unless I'm continually trying to um, extend to people and that, I, you know, I gain a greater understanding of myself is how writing is social. I mean, we have this like great misunderstanding that people sit alone in a room by themselves and write things and like they come out and like you know like show it to the world i mean and that can happen but that is often not how like the best and most important writing exists in the world um that it exists through collaboration and feedback and revision um not likely that a computer is going to be able to do that well anytime soon um unless you're writing for a computer and like we already have coding. So I don't really know like that computers need to read essays. Yeah. I don't think they're going to take that away. I think lots of what we do is more iterative and ideation. And like you said, revision, like you should, your first draft is not going to be your last draft on anything um, even beyond writing. So don't worry. The robots aren't, aren't coming yet, but if they do like, let's ask them some questions and understand what they're doing. So that's, that's my thought. Chris, I think, thank you so much for having this conversation. I uh, don't know if we solved AI, anything. And, you know, anyone at me, tell me what you think it really is. And if we're totally wrong, happy to take your input. So let us know. Well, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Bye robots, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of Ed Tech, visit 25years.opened.ca.